Father, we do come into your presence with thanksgiving. It is appropriate for us to do so. You are so good and so gracious and so faithful and so loving. And Father, we also rejoice that you are here. You've not left us alone. You have come. You uh, personify in Christ the name Emmanuel, God with us. And we rejoice in that. Father, we do confess that for us it is a challenge to make room for you. Sometimes to listen to you. To hear what you have to say to us. And I just pray that by your spirit you would take your word today. And speak afresh. Convict, encourage, exhort. Do your work so that we can be more like Jesus. We ask that in his name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. The Catholic Church got a new pope this week, you're probably aware. A guy named Francis. I'm not sure we have anything quite that exciting for you this morning, but I at least have a quote from Francis of Assisi that I'll get to in a minute. We've been studying the book of Mark, and it's been a really great study, if brief, in this whole time of preparing for Easter. And uh, we're referring to a book called The King's Cross, and it comes out of the concept that right from the beginning, right from the baptism of Jesus, when other people were wondering who he was, and everyone seemed to wonder what he was doing, the whole point was he was on a march towards the cross. We saw that in his baptism when the Trinity was there, the Father speaking of his love and his pleasure in Christ, the Holy Spirit there as a dove hovering, ministering, Jesus, the very creator of the universe, there submitting himself to the plans of his Father. And then we looked at an example where Jesus pushed back the effects of the curse. Uh, basically, he dealt with the paralytic. And he didn't just deal with his physical limitations, he dealt with his spiritual issues. He said, you are forgiven. And it made everybody upset because who can forgive but God? That's the point. Jesus is and was God there. And then after that uh, experience, we saw Jesus as the creator of the universe take hold of the universe and calm it down. When the seas and the wind were storming and raging, Jesus just spoke as the creator and sustainer of the universe. And the seas grew quiet and the wind calmed down. Well, today we're going to learn about the values at work in the very heart of the kingdom of God. When Jesus said that his kingdom was come, this is part of what he meant was going to happen and was going to be the new normal. Now, this was not teaching that everybody was uh, quick to grasp. And so the religious leaders, in fact, had gotten pretty ticked off at Jesus. And they were offended at him. In the first place, they did not accept him as the Messiah, the sent one, the one that was anointed to be a king in the line of David. Uh, They didn't accept him at all, and so they didn't accept his teaching. But it was a bit of a problem for them because he kept doing miracles and teaching in a way that amazed everybody. So the religious leaders who were trying to get the common people to quit following Jesus were having a hard time. So they thought they'd rely on their better spiritual insight and mental aptitude to try to trick Jesus in their questions. Can you imagine that kind of a game? Who wants to play Jeopardy with Jesus on the other side, right? And that's in essence what they do. They decide they're going to try to trick Jesus. And so the first thing they do is they want to know whose authority are you using when you do these miracles, and especially when you cast out demons. In fact, we think you're using the power of Satan himself. And so then he asked him that question, well, whose power was at work in John the Baptist? 
And Jesus knew he had him between a rock and a hard place because they would love to have said John the Baptist was also a selfish guy about his own issues and probably working for Satan. But they knew the people loved John the Baptist and had received him as a prophet. So they couldn't answer that question. And so then they moved on to a very common question for many of us. What about taxes? They probably thought, if we can make Jesus say something positive about taxes, we know everybody will quit liking him. Because who is popular with taxes? So they said, what about Caesar? And he said, bring me a coin, you guys. And he looks at the coin and says, whose figure's on the coin? Well, it is Caesar. Well, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. And so they were stymied again. So another group, you know, they're tag team here. Different leaders coming up. Another group of Sadducees comes up. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They think there's no life after death. So they had probably over time, in their own logic, worked out this puzzle. Well, since there's really no resurrection, I mean, how could there be a resurrection? For instance, we know that if a woman marries into a family with many brothers, in the case they come up with is seven, and one brother dies, another brother is supposed to marry that woman. And so they come to Jesus and say, you know, this happened. This woman married into a family with seven brothers. And one after another, they all died. And she kept marrying the next one and the next one. And then when they're all dead and she's dead, now, God, how could that possibly work out in heaven to make any sense? Who is she going to be married to? And thinking they'd stump Jesus, Jesus said, you guys don't know the scriptures, which is a pretty harsh thing to say to people who are Jewish, and you don't know the power of God. Because you don't understand how real the resurrection is. But let me just tell you, God is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living, not dead. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And so the people that were trying to question him were getting sobered by this. And this one man had observed, and that leads us to our lesson today. And this person had observed, and I think he maybe didn't come with full skepticism. Maybe he wondered, really, who is this man and what is this teaching? But it says, verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And we don't know a lot about this man, but it doesn't seem like this is as skeptical a question. They were talking about the law all the time. They had taken the Ten Commandments and other things from Deuteronomy and Leviticus and the writings of Moses, and they had generated 613 laws. And they would debate all the time how you keep those laws and what it looks like and what it means. And occasionally, which ones, or maybe even which one is the most important. And so this question comes to Jesus. I think, wow, he is so wise. Let me ask this sage, this teacher, who, by the way, was a young man, given the culture of that day. Let's ask him this important question. And so Jesus answers this question seriously. Verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, actually, this is just a ramp up. Jesus hasn't answered the question yet. Which command, they asked, and he sets the stage by saying, the first thing you have to do is you have to understand which God we're talking about when you want to know which command is the greatest. Because he's about to tell them how to relate to this God. But first, he wants to make sure it's the right God. And so he refers to Deuteronomy 6.5, which was a saying that they called the Shema, which they said twice a day, every day. This expression, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, was something from the time they were children they were taught to recite. And what does this mean? This means the God of Israel is the right and only God. Well, 
To his Jewish audience, even to some of these skeptics, this was a good answer. This didn't cause offense. They agreed with him. They kind of tied in with this. Um, But I guess in essence, for us, this is also a critical thing. There's so many people that are getting a new interest, a refreshed interest in spiritual things. And they're looking in all kinds of places and all kinds of ways to see if they can't be more spiritual and to see if they can't have a healthier spiritual life and find more satisfaction somehow in their spiritual life. But unless they point themselves at the one true God, they're barking up the wrong tree. And so some people just actually choose to be more religious. Well, maybe if I did this pious thing and that pious thing, and, and some people choose to be more involved in their church. Maybe I should be more regular. Maybe I should even go to the Lenten series. By the way, I totally back what Barry said. You should go to the Lenten series because it's been a wonderful time in God's Word and in fellowship and in worship as we reflect on the gifts God's given us. But nonetheless, if you're coming just because you want to make some points and feel better about yourself, you're missing the point. The idea is we must pursue God as He reveals Himself. Not just as He reveals Himself, as He is. He exists as the heart of truth, as the heart of reality. He has revealed Himself in our scriptures, and most of all, He reveals Himself in the person and work of Christ. And so, young people, anybody actually that thinks, you know what, I think I'd be a little happier if I could be a little more spiritual, you better start out in the right direction. You better go towards the God of Israel, the God of scriptures, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2006, there was a very fatal, very sad aircraft accident that happened in Lexington, Kentucky. And what happened was, it was an early morning flight. I can imagine, I've actually been on early morning flights. Uh, You know, those guys wake up, they get to the airport, they're going through all the routines and all the checklists, and they're multitasking, get everything ready for getting off from this airport, getting at the next airport, which was not very far away for them, from Lexington to Atlanta. And uh, going out first flight of the day, they probably had other flights of the day. They're also thinking about whether they need to call their wife and all those things. And the guy in the control tower clears them for takeoff on runway 22, which means 220 degrees, basically picture southwest. But there was also at that airport a runway 26. It just was a lot shorter. And they lined up on that runway 26 instead of on runway 22. And that pilot used all the horsepower available in that jet went full power to try to get enough speed to take off from that runway. But it was impossible. As soon as they committed to the wrong runway, they were committing to their death. There was not enough power in that airplane to get off the ground. And in essence, that's exactly what happens with religion. That's what happens when people try to pursue spirituality and they aren't pursuing Christ. It's going to be a wreck. I promise you, now or later, it's going to be a wreck. And so Jesus starts out, he's going to get to this question of what's the most important commandment, but he says, let's not make any mistake, unless you're pursuing the true God, you're an accident waiting to happen. And then he gets on to verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now this is a mouthful. This is an amazing thing that Jesus is talking about here. And unfortunately, you know, we have the English language which serves us well sometimes, but the word love has gotten a lot of mileage in our culture, as it does, it seems, in every culture. Uh, My wife was suggesting I get the choir to sing some secular love songs this morning just to help us get into the mood for this, but I couldn't quite pull it off and get organized enough with Keith to do that. 
But what do we think of when that, we hear that word love? Love the Lord your God. Well, the word love for most people, you look at most common definitions, and it's going to start with something like this. Love is an intense feeling. I love my significant other. I love my child. I love my mother. But again, based in emotion and feeling. Sometimes also said, I love my dog. I love my GMC pickup. I love my sports team. You see, we have this sense that we can communicate so much through this word. So what is God asking of us? Other definitions include profound, tender, passionate affection. Sounds good. And that, I think, can be part of love. But it also can be infatuation, which can lead to the same reckless abandon that true love can. But the difference between infatuation and love is infatuation is being in love with being in love. And enjoying the experience and being intoxicated and carried away by it. It's a very different thing than sacrificial, others-oriented, others-focused love. Infatuation is really a wild ride for a season, but it doesn't last and persist and endure. So the biblical understanding of love is caring and others' focus in action. It's not limited to how we feel includes our feelings, but includes our actions, our words, even our attitudes towards others. And the key heart out of it is to say, it's not a focus on me, it's a focus on someone else. That's the biblical picture of love. But surely loving God is best experienced in heartfelt worship. When I'm exalting God and when I'm feeling His love and feeling the love. Actually, this is a little tricky because it is appropriate to have passionate worship. For us to exalt God and to, to reflect and bathe in his love is appropriate. David was a leader in this. He, he just loved to worship. He loved to be at God's house. He loved the music that obviously released his soul. He was a great poet, as we know. But you see, this love that is expressed here, when we're told to love God, the word that the scriptures use is the agape love. Not phileo or this feeling of kind of warmth and brotherly kindness or love, but self-sacrificing, others-oriented love. So Jesus says, this is how we're supposed to love God. And as if that isn't enough, he goes on to say, of course, that we're supposed to love him with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. How much is that? To love God that intensely, that completely, that fully. It's a bit sobering, isn't it? Now, let me be careful to say that this love, this sacrificial love that we are to direct towards God, does not the same thing as martyrdom. It does not mean that somehow I have to lay down my life and make some sacrifice for God. It doesn't mean that I do things to win points or to sacrifice so that somehow, some way, I might win the love of God. That's not what Jesus was referring to. What he's saying is that this love, this agape love we're supposed to direct back to God is supposed to be a response to the one who first loved us. Having such a need and so little ability to understand that he has unleashed his love on us unconditionally while we were still sinners. Then he invites us to respond to that love and to be consumed by that love and to return and reflect that love which he has for us. It's to understand that the one who has loved us so humbly that he was willing to sacrifice is our true king and the true king and to make him king in our lives. 
That's when we get to the place where we say, I want to be sold out for this one. I want to respond to the way he has loved me. I want my identity and my purpose to be about his purposes and his identity and his glory. That's what God calls us to. And friends, it's an adventure to respond to that. Now, you should also be sobered as I am because I can't do this myself. It's not in me to love God with this kind of passion and faithfulness. And it's okay because God is a God of grace. Just like I don't have to win his favor, he loved me first. He also gives me the grace even to respond in obedience. It's the grace of God. And in essence, what it works out to be is we have to learn to take up our own cross and follow him. So all we have to say is, you know what, for me to serve myself is a dangerous thing. I've got to get to the place where I'm so fed up with that. I say, oh God, have mercy. Today I don't want to serve myself. I know that's going to lead me down some kind of a trail that's going to be destructive. So by your grace and mercy, may I die to my flesh today. And may I be free to live with the resurrected power of Jesus living through me. So that I can love you, and as it turns out, love others just like Jesus. And that is the key. Taking up our cross is the only way. But then we get to be free to obey. We get to be free from ourselves, which actually is a very good thing. Well, Jesus, having been asked this question, what's the greatest command? He sneaks in two answers, actually. The first, he says, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. But before he takes a breath, he says, and there's a second, and it's like it. Let's look at the next verse. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well, you might think we're getting off a little easier now. When he said love God, we have to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now comes time to figure out how to love our neighbor, and we only have to love him like we love ourselves. Okay, how easy is that? Are we not in a little bit of trouble here? Yes. Are you basically like me? Did you wake up this morning wondering what you wanted and what you needed and how you're going to accomplish getting those things? Might you have come to church even thinking, I wonder who's going to talk to me today. I wonder if I'm going to have a good time in the service and in the cafe. And I wonder if I'll get out in time to get where I want to go for lunch. I mean, we are so oriented to self. And Jesus is saying, basically, I want you to love others the way you have gotten to be so good at loving yourself. And that's like a choker, gang. That's such a challenge to do. And so if we start to pick this up and say, okay, so if I'm going to be part of the kingdom of God, if I'm going to become someone who is responding to the love of God, filled with the love of God, expressing the love of God to others, what does that look like? And if you're like me, you try to bargain with God. You say, well, okay, if I've got to love others... That's a big task. But maybe if I could find some people that are just like me, and they're kind to me, and they're nice. You know, they smell good, and they they have good reputations, and they're just good to be around, and I'm blessed when I'm around them. Maybe if I could find a set of people like that, then maybe I could love them like I'm supposed to, like I love myself. Is that enough, God? Is that what you're asking of me, to find a group? And by the way, when we look for those groups, we look a long time, don't we? And, uh, And yet this is our tendency. And sometimes we do that at church. I think I want to find not just any church, but a church with people like me. And a church with people who give me strokes and I give them strokes and we both feel better because we've been together and then we'll know we've done church. Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't let us off the hook that easily. He says, I'll tell you what your neighbor looks like. 
This person that you need to love like you love yourself, he actually looks like your enemy. He's that person at work that gives you the hardest time, doesn't respect you, doesn't appreciate you, you can't enjoy being with them. That's the one I want you to love like you love yourself. Those people that even that you're at church with, the ones that are the most different from you, the ones that it's even awkward to have a conversation, and you're pretty sure if you talk very long, you're going to find something to disagree about. And you'd rather stay a little bit away from them. That's the one I want you to love. That's what it looks like when you start being like me. Because Jesus, remember, loved us while we were sinners. He didn't say, get your act together and I'll spend time with you. He came to us in our brokenness. And actually, all of the gospel accounts consistently show the people that thought they had their act together didn't see a need for Jesus. It was the broken and the poor and the struggling who received his love. Everybody had a need for it. These religious leaders that rejected Jesus needed it just as much as the tax collectors and any other sinner. They just didn't know it. And so when we understand that Jesus has loved me just where I am, just for who I am, then it frees me to say, and if I'm going to be Jesus and have the resurrected power of Jesus living through me, I'm going to love people like he did. In fact, maybe I'll start seeing people differently. I'll see them as Jesus sees them. That's really our goal for this. Well, I'm afraid... Love gets a bad rap these days, and this is where I get to the Francis of Assisi quote. He is quoted as saying, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. This is an expression that's used quite often when people say, you shouldn't preach the gospel so much, you shouldn't be so exclusive about talking about Jesus, or so quick to talk about Jesus, and maybe you don't need to talk about hell and judgment. Just be good and do good. That's what they say. And then they say, Francis who is the name of the new pope, is the guy behind this. But actually, I read one of his biographers, and he said there wasn't anything written for hundreds of years by his biographers that had anything to say about this from Francis. There's no evidence that he ever said this. What there is evidence is he was a great preacher of the gospel. And he did preach to the poor and the broken. He preached to anybody that would listen. And he also did good works. But he did not separate out the good works from the sharing of the good news, and we should not do that either. Real love basically says both. How can you say to a prisoner who's captive, I really love you, I'll send you chocolate bars, when in fact, you know the secret to getting them out of their bondage, which is Christ Jesus and the story of his life, which we call the gospel. Well, how do we love others like this? What's it look like here at Christ Church? How do we forgive and move on and still love those people who are difficult? It's the same thing that is the answer to the question about how we love God. Guess what? You've got to get up in the morning and you have to die to yourself. You have to say, Lord Jesus, in my flesh today, I'm going to be looking out for number one. But by your grace and mercy, may I die to myself and let the resurrected power of Christ live through me so that I can love as you have loved. That's the call of the kingdom. It's uh, an exciting adventure, actually, to do that with much, much joy and much reward, both in this life and in the next life. I want to close with a personal story and uh, don't like to often take too much time, but it's appropriate today for me to share some things with you about my own journey and just trying to figure out what it looks like to say Jesus is my king. Uh, Some of you would know Sue and I have been involved in overseas missions for a number of years, 14 years, with the same organization, who had as their primary focus um, taking the gospel to Africa, and not just anywhere in Africa, but places in Africa where nobody had heard the gospel before. 
And uh, there's a lot of places where the gospel has exploded. There's still a lot of places in Africa, particularly North Africa, where the gospel is barely penetrating. Well, uh, in the fall, this organization contacted me by email. They had a headhunter service that was looking to fill a key leadership role that's coming open this summer. And they contacted me and asked if I would consider applying for that position. And uh, Sue and I talked about it. And we felt like, you know, when God called us here to Christchurch, this was supposed to be a 10 to 12 year run. We expected to kind of really get into the trenches here and, and serve and use our gifts. And we have enjoyed these two years. There's been bumps. There's been issues as we've all walked through this transition. But we have been blessed being here. And God's blessed us with relationships and with fruitful ministry. And beyond that, if you don't know, we also have four children, all of whom have moved to the Pittsburgh area and live within, actually, about 15 miles of this church. Uh, and also one of those, our oldest daughter, has given us our only grandchild, a two-year-old. So when they asked us if we would consider this role, we just didn't think it was really what God was directing us to do. But as we went through the fall, and were praying and talking and considering, and I must admit, even God used my own preaching in this regard. You probably don't remember what I said, but I remember preaching about the life of Mary coming up to Advent. And Mary was this teenager who got the incredible privilege of being used of God to be the very mother of the Savior of the universe. And yet, what was her response? I don't know if you remember this, but she was so humble and saying, I can't believe, God, that you would use me. And she was also so inconvenienced to be the mother of Jesus, which we all think, what a fantastic thing that is for eternity, and it is, but it meant that she had to be pregnant before she got married and embarrassed in her own community. She had to flee for her life to Egypt. She had to live with all the difficulties around Jesus' work and ministry, and she had to watch her beloved son die on a cross. It was not convenient for Mary to obey and serve God. And so as I was wrestling with that, I was reminded, as my wife was, when we were teenagers, God took us separately through a journey where we came to the place where we said, you know what, God, we think it's right. If we're going to call you Lord, that we would say we will be available for Anything, anytime, any place. And so as part of that journey, we were wrestling with this, and we felt like, well, perhaps we've misunderstood what God has for us for this chapter. And perhaps instead of holding on to Pittsburgh and holding on to living near our kids and holding on to how much we enjoy fellowship and ministry here at Christ Church, God's asking us to release our hands and say, okay, God, we'll say again that we're available. We don't know what it looks like, but we say we're available. We still had the sense that God could so easily close that door. This search process for this uh, leadership position, they uh, had done a national search inside and outside the organization. And we thought it's going to be pretty easy for God, if he doesn't want us to move on, to say no. We got through into this final interview process, and there were six candidates. Uh, and we went through that, and interestingly, just to put this in the time frame, we were uh, about to go for that final interview the week that John Panner uh, resigned and that transition happened at Christ Church. And so we're trying to wonder, God, what does this mean? But he had brought us to such a place in our heart where we felt it was right to say we're available. We felt like we should continue moving in that journey. So we went through that interview process and, and had a lot of conversations with dear friends who knew us and loved us and love our kids. And we don't want to be martyrs. We didn't want to make some sacrifice that God didn't require here. We want to pretend to be spiritual. We just wanted to be obedient. Long story short, at the end of that process, the organization has asked that I would serve as their U.S. director, and we have said that we would. 
So we finish end of May uh, and move on in the summer to this new situation which requires us to leave Pittsburgh and actually move to a city in the south and be focused again on that work in Africa. And I want to say a couple of things. One is this is a full circle experience for us in some ways. As we saw God's hand in so many ways, hopefully we'll be able to tell you over the weeks and months ahead, but one of the things that puts our life together in a very unique way, it's as if God had set out from the beginning to orchestrate our lives for this very purpose. My job as a pilot allowed me to really see the work over all of Africa. And then uh, I did go and work in this U.S. office for three years. They asked me to take an assignment there in the personnel department, and I learned it from the inside. Then we did some other things, leading a school outside of the organization, and then God called us back to this organization. And I worked in their international office for seven years as their CFO, working with finances and just working with the international director. And we felt like we had completed that assignment, and God had closed that door when we came here. But now we see that God was working all those things for this purpose of this thing that he's opening up for us to do now. And yet, what does that mean for you? That's our journey. That's our story. We have some bitterness in it. It's a bittersweet thing. We're thankful. We, we are humbled uh, by the opportunity. But at the same time, we're excited to be in this adventure with God. But one of the, about Christchurch, we have a heart for Christchurch. We want good and blessing for Christchurch. Well, I will say that the wardens have uh, been working on this the few weeks they've known about it with diligence. The parish council will be working on this with diligence. There's already some things coming to place, and I'm not sure what's going to happen. No one has a plan yet, so don't worry about that. But I'm seeing the sovereign hand of God at work. Uh, I'm encouraged by the wardens and their attitudes and our interaction. They've graciously allowed me to continue and to be part of the... Uh, planning and working to make this transition something that builds this church instead of being a bump and a knock for this church. I have to say that the staff have also encouraged me with their response, gracious response. I've really enjoyed working with the staff. We have a great staff at Christ Church. I don't know if you know that. I think there are many of their work is invisible to you, but there are wonderful folks that do great work with a good heart. And uh, I appreciate their gracious response when I told them this week about this situation. And I totally trust that God's going to allow us to finish well and to find God's grace in the midst of this story. And then I want to think about what about you? Uh, One of my prayers, one of my main prayers for today in making this announcement is that Satan would not use this to discourage you. What's happening at my church? Instead, I hope you'll hear what happens when someone just seeks to serve God and to be available. And if God has a plan for us, which he does, he also has a plan for you, which is for good. And I recognize that doesn't mean it's going to be easy or without pain. But my desire is you'll say, okay, God, what does it look like for me to love you today with all of my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength? And it might mean that some of you get called to leave Christ Church, but most likely it means that you need to stay here and be lovers of one another, helping each other to love God in a sold-out way. For his kingdom. That's most likely. And so that's my prayer for you. That you'll say, okay, God, what are you saying to me? What am I supposed to do? What's my anywhere, anytime, anything today? And I know for sure at the heart of the kingdom of God is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for your grace at work in my life. 
And just for your gracious use of me and the way you've worked with Sue and I and uh, all the things that you've done. And yet, Lord, today I pray for Christ Church. I pray for your grace and your mercy and your passion and your love to touch and to heal and to encourage. And, Father, I pray that together we will have done with lesser things. All the things we tend to love besides you, which cause us to love ourselves instead of others. And I pray that in a fresh way, each one of us would just allow you to fill our hearts with your love so that it flows out, so that we minister to each other, we bless others, and in so doing, we obey you. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen.